Hello and welcome to the Numlock Podcast. I am Walt Hickey. My guest this week is Pat Garofalo. He is the author of The Billionaire Boondoggle. He's also the writer of the Boondoggle newsletter. And uh, by day, he's the director of state and local policy at the American Economic Liberties Project. Uh, Pat writes all about how local governments get rolled by large companies and how that hurts small businesses, local municipalities, and, and all that. Uh, and this week, we talk about the latest in economic research that he's covered and also some of the more interesting trends going on nationally. I hope you enjoy it. Pat Garofalo, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, so you have a bunch of really cool stories coming out through both your day job and your newsletter, uh, Boondoggle, but I guess just kind of taking a step back, do you want to talk a little bit about what you generally kind of cover when it comes to incentives and, and how different cities try to woo different companies to various successful and unsuccessful ends? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the tagline that I use is how corporations are ripping off your state and city. Um, and I got interested in this actually way back during the Great Recession. I was an economic policy reporter covering the sort of fallout from the recession and the austerity push that was happening across the country. You saw all these wacky situations where cities were literally turning off their streetlights while at the same time paying to give some billionaire, usually a sports stadium at the time. Um, and then the more I started digging into this, I realized it wasn't just sports stadiums. It was hotels. It was... Uh, um, massive sporting goods stores. It was every corporate headquarters in the country that there's been this long, decades-long push amongst the corporate elite in this country uh, to tell a story about how economic development happens in the U.S. and to reap rewards for doing things that way. And it's totally wrong. The way they're going about it and the way the politicians they have in their pockets go about it is just backwards. It's just a completely wrong way to build local economies. Um, and so that's the sort of work I've been doing ever since. Yeah, you write about all sorts of different things, whether, you know, the Amazon HQ2 thing was a huge illustration of this, where basically it inverted the way that, you know, lots of local economics should kind of work and basically turn cities into bidders for a headquarters that, you know, was going to happen nevertheless. Right. That, and that one was an interesting sort of anomaly in this um system that, that corporate America has built up because it was so public. Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, was sort of so brazen about it and pitting all these states and cities against each other. The, the really problematic aspect of this uh, to me is actually how much of it happens in the dark, how much of it we don't know about. These deals are often presented by local officials as a fait accompli. They come out and announce it before any uh, you know other resident, any other local official can have a say and say, hey, we're doing this. We're going to give this corporation a bunch of money. You're going to see all those benefits. You're welcome. Goodbye. Um, and the reason for that is that these things actually pay a lot of um, political capital. If you dig into the uh, literature on, on incentives and corporate tax deals, they don't pay off on the economic side. They don't create jobs. They don't boost incomes. They don't boost local GDP. They often cost localities a whole lot of money. But what they do increase is incumbent politician vote totals. Um, one of the most fascinating stats I've, I've seen in, in the academic literature about this stuff is that... Um, States' use of incentives go up once every four years. Why is that? Because governors are running for re-election. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, yeah, the secrecy component, you know, you've written a lot about this lately. Um, and I like how, you know, you've really highlighted that there are towns and city councils that are voting on incentive packages where they don't know even 
all necessarily know who the money is going towards in some cases with like server farms and whatnot. Yeah, this is totally wild. This actually happened in, in Fort Wayne recently. There was a, they literally, the city council was voting on an incentive package and most of the city council did not know who the recipient was going to be. It turned out to be Amazon <laughs> um, because the people who were involved in the deal-making had signed non-disclosure agreements. This is public officials who are spending public dollars signing non-disclosure deals with the corporation to say that they can't divulge uh, any information about the recipient, including literally its name. It's just so corrupt. Um, this, this to me is just like, there's, there's the economic stuff, right? Like that these deals are not paying off for states and cities and they're not bringing the economic benefits. But that also is just problematic democratically, right? How are you supposed to assess the job that your local officials are doing if they literally will not tell you who they are meeting with and who they are dealing with and who they're giving your money to? Yeah. This is, it's so huge. And I kind of wanted to take everything back to a very big case that has really gone down um, that has attracted a lot of attention. And I think like put a lot of these stories on the map, which is the the situation with Foxconn in Wisconsin. You know, it's got all the makings of things, things that you've been talking about. It came about as a, during an election. Uh, it came about, you know, the economics of it were suspect to begin with and only kind of got worse as it went along. And the, the economic benefit you know, has kind of really folded and collapsed. And so I guess like, I would love to just kind of hear what that story is and kind of where we're at now, because I know that we've actually had some recent news on it. Yeah. So to back up to this from the beginning, this was, you know, 2017, um, Donald Trump had just been elected president. Scott Walker is the governor of Wisconsin. They announced this massive deal with Foxconn, which is a Taiwanese manufacturer. They make a lot of Apple products. Um, and it was something on the on the order of $4.8 billion. They were going to create tens of thousands of blue collar jobs. And this is Wisconsin and the Midwest. And so that was a big deal. It was going to be part of, you know, Trump's big move to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. and make America great again. Um, and then Fast forward a few years and Foxconn literally did nothing. There was just nothing there. They changed their plans over and over and over. It went from a, you know, tens of thousands of jobs in a manufacturing site to a thousand white collar jobs in an office building. The, the whole thing unraveled. And actually the promising thing about this deal to my mind, uh, was that there actually was a political price for it as opposed to a political benefit. Governor Walker lost his reelection to current Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers, in large part because of this deal, because Wisconsin residents looked at this thing and went, uh, this is not good. This is clearly not working out for us. Um, so Evers recently renegotiated the deal. The amount of money went from about $4.8 billion to about $80 million. So a huge, huge, huge decrease in the amount of money yeah, wait. <laughs> that Foxconn could... <laughs> One of those B's became an M. Right, that's exactly. not usually a good sign. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, so that's good. I think that it was is the nice thing about that deal was that there actually was a little democratic accountability. You know, someone lost office. The, the current governor had a mandate to renegotiate, and he did, and that's good. I still don't love the deal. Um, for two reasons. One is that, in a sense, you're sort of giving Foxconn another whack at something it doesn't deserve. Like it. it didn't even come close to fulfilling the, the, the uh, its side of the original deal. And so you're letting it rework it and try again and promise something new. Um, and, and there's no real reason to think that Foxconn is going to, to keep its promises this time either, but you're still putting the state on the hook for $80 million, which again is a lot better than $4.8 billion. Like that's, that's great. That's yeah. many billions of dollars that are not, you're not liable for. Um, so that's good. But there's certainly a world in which just letting the original deal play out and having Foxconn just fall on its face and not meet any of its metrics and therefore not get most of its money uh, would have actually saved the state money um, if, if we assume that Foxconn is going to fulfill the, the, the second deal, which I, I don't really think it will, but 
that remains to be seen. But the second part of this is that, and, and this is an important part, I think, of the overall incentive story, is that localities in Wisconsin um, made investments uh, on the premise that Foxconn was going to build the first thing, the massive manufacturing plant, um, made infrastructure investments, seized homes through through eminent domain. One town in Wisconsin is on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation for eminent domain for seizing folks' homes. Those people had to move. Um, and now like the plant just isn't happening. And that's one of the things I tell people I spend a lot of time in my day job at the uh, American Economic Liberties Project talking to folks around the country, both in office and, and activists and community members about these deals. And one of the things I bring up all the time is these plans are not ironclad. The officials will tell you, oh, we are giving X million dollars and we are receiving Y benefits as if Y benefits are certain. It's definitely going to happen. But they often don't. And Foxconn is such a perfect example. Um, and there are reasons that they don't that are both nefarious, like the corporation never intended to do the thing it was doing. It was just dragging people along to get some money, but also legitimate, right? Sometimes a pandemic happens and lots of corporations have to suddenly change their spending plans. Um, but the way these deals get treated in, in the public square and in the public debate and, and the way that politicians talk about them as if they're done deals. Um, so Foxconn is just such a great example of uh, the, the sort of things that folks need to look out for and, and, and why states and localities need to be really, really careful. Because again, these these little Wisconsin towns made, spent money. The, the one village in Wisconsin actually had its credit downgraded because its promised outlays for Foxconn were so, were so high that even the credit rating agencies were like, whoa, <laughs> there's no way that this is going to happen. Um, but they did it. And now they're out. They're just out this money. No one's ever going to make them whole. Even if Foxconn fulfills this second smaller deal and does build this smaller plant, you're never going to get that back. And for those folks who had their home seized and had to move, like, you're not going to get their, your house back either. Um, so that's why states and localities need to be so, 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 so careful when they enter into these massive mega deals. Because from the point of view, like, the reason that these deals are struck and, and come up with is because for the point of view of the company, it's really you know privatizing a lot of the benefit and publicizing a lot of the risk. And it seems like this is just a really good illustration of what went down in Wisconsin of, you know, like who you have to look, who's holding the bag right now? Like what negative consequences Foxconn suffered as a result of, of, you know, backtracking on this deal versus what are the negative consequences that, you know, small towns have suffered. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Foxconn's ding was to its reputation, right? But again, it got to come right back and renegotiate a new deal. And, you know, the number of times you see these things fall apart and then you turn around and the same company um, comes riding, riding back in and says, oh, no, we'll, we'll do it here and we'll do it better. I mean, Tesla uh, is a perfect example, has has ripped off city after city after city. Elon Musk is a, is a sort of famous grifter in this state, not just uh, with Tesla, but with some of his other companies. Um, and yet, um, states and cities still will sit down at the table and will give them something and say, okay, this time it's different. Okay, our community is different. Um, and so it can get really distressing, but I think one of the reasons that happens, um, and you often see in, in this space, it's, it is the big tech companies uh, that tend to get um, some of the largest deals and some of the flashiest deals. You're talking about Amazon HQ2. We can talk about a new Apple campus in North Carolina. We can talk about Tesla getting deals all over. Austin is throwing money at tech companies left and right. Um, and it's because there's this like a lure, right, of, the, of these shiny new tech jobs, even though this is actually just a very old model of ride into town, promise the promise the residents a lot of benefits in return for a lot of money. You can you can literally date this back to the beginning of the of the of the United States. Alexander Hamilton uh, got the first corporate tax break in, in US history for a manufacturing <laughs> right. plant in Patterson, New Jersey. That never was completed. So we started off exactly <laughs> where we wound up. Uh, and some and some of his associates went to jail. So really like <laughs> he really set the standard um, for how these things go. Yeah, I think I missed that song in Act Two. Yeah, but, right. I mean, yeah. All right. Yeah, somehow somehow Miranda <laughs> left that one out. Left that one out of the show. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> uh, but like the modern era, the modern era is really it goes back to uh, to World War II and the post World War II era, um, period when Southern states were trying to diversify their economies coming out of the war. They were mostly agricultural. It was Mississippi that really started um, this this shtick of going to northern manufacturing plants and saying, "Hey." We'll give you a lot of money, bring your plant down here. Actually, John F. Kennedy, when he was in the Senate, would go on the Senate floor and just rail about um, southern states poaching northeastern manufacturing plants. Um, so even though like the the today's version of that is to pay some shiny tech company to do it, like a Foxconn, like a Tesla, um, this is the same story that we've seen over and over and over again. Yeah, and, and you know... Setting aside the the municipal, municipal blowback, right? Like setting aside the fact that that's money that you can't spend on on school textbooks, and when you don't collect property taxes, that does have ramifications for what you can offer, you know, kids and libraries and all that kind of stuff. Setting even that aside, you have this really cool study that's come out that kind of talks about how states that give incentives and how that actually affects small businesses in the area. And so I guess I was just kind of wondering, do you want to go into what your research showed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a study. It's a fascinating new study by a guy named Manavraj at the Stern School of Business. And he very kindly uh, sent it to me. Um, and it shows two things. It shows one, that political competitiveness in a state legislature is correlated with uh, increased use of incentives. So like the more like that, the tighter, the, 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 um, governing majorities are, it's like the smaller the governor majority, governing majorities are in the state legislature and the likelier the legislature is to flip back and forth between the two parties, mm. the more likely uh, that legislature is to hand out incentives. And then the second thing is the more incentives a legislature hands out, the like the less likely it is that small businesses will succeed. And this actually, this, this study is so fascinating because it ties together a lot of what I'm, both myself and all the other folks in this space have been talking about for so long, which is that these things are not about economics, they're about politics, and they're about entrenching dominance incumbent firms and harming small businesses because it makes sense right like the companies that get the bulk of these incentives are the large big ones that can afford to pay to have lobbying shops you know amazon and, and other big companies will literally pay people called who are called site selection consultants like that's a job is to go out <laughs> and and to figure out how to get the most money out of these um, states and localities um, and small businesses just can't afford to do that right so the academic research is really clear it's big companies that that get the most of this stuff and so States and cities are are literally subsidizing the business, like the the business model of large companies vis-a-vis -vis their smaller competitors, right? So it makes perfect sense yeah. um, that this is harmful to small folks who just don't get the same level of support for the state. That the the example that always comes to mind when I talk about this. Uh, particular aspect is Amazon. Amazon is notorious. They've gotten some $3 billion plus dollars in state and local incentives over the years. Um, and wow. most of that is actually not HQ2, even though that was a big one. Most of that is for its distribution network. It's for its warehouses and for its distribution houses. Um, and so you can see if you're a small retailer, how it really like grind your gears, right? That Amazon is paying to have it, is, is, is receiving money to build out its distribution network. That's not something you ever receive as a small business. You know, if you're just selling stuff out of your garage, it's not like, you know, the mayor's going to come down and be like, here, have all this money to, to, to buy a delivery truck. Excellent. Keep up the good work. Like, that doesn't happen. Um, so it's making the cost of building out a distribution network cheaper for Amazon versus other retailers, which Amazon then turns around and uses as leverage to pound other retailers into the dirt. Amazon is notorious for using its distribution network um, as, a, as a stick to beat other retailers. But they'll say, oh, yeah, you can, you know, if you pay us to use our distribution network, 
we'll give you prime access. We'll do all these other things. And they just ratchet up the fees year after year after year. So you sort of be, just become beholden to Amazon's taxpayer funded um, network. So th this was like the, the, the Fed, it was great to put some numbers to this story and to have data showing that like this feeling that we all had in the space that this is bad for small businesses uh, actually does bear out when you look at the data. But then the second part um, was really interesting to me too, the fact that um, tighter, uh, um, more competitive legislatures give out more incentives. And that actually does make sense if you think about it, because in a tight legislature where, say, the majority has, you know, one or two votes and it can only lose one or two or their bills go down, that gives each individual lawmaker um, more leverage to, to um, get concessions during legislative debates. And since we know that incentives are good political capital, that seems to be what state legislatures go for. So if you're like the Joe Manchin of, you know, Missouri, the Missouri legislature, you're the critical key vote vote that can't be lost, you go and say, hey, you know, give my buddies down here um, some incentives and then sure, I'm on your bill. Um, so it's just really fascinating. So again, Manavraj at the Stern School of Business, um, I wrote it up in my uh, Boondoggle newsletter. It, it, it just really tied together a lot of strands, again, sort of circling back to the core point about all this, which is that it's a political problem. It's not an economic problem. Um, the economics are unambiguous. This stuff is bad for states and localities. Um, the reason it continues year after year after year and folks like me are out here screaming about it all the time is because uh, these giveaways make for really good politics. Yeah, the thing that, like, again, it's really interesting that finding about how it really negatively impacts small business, which, like, very much makes sense to me because, like, small business owners do tend to pay corporate taxes. Like, they tend, because they are individually held, they tend to do profit and then pass those profit on to shareholders, which are, which are taxed. And, like, you know, the entire Amazon credo, like, Bezos notoriously said, like, your margin is my opportunity. And, like, that seems very true here, where, like, you know, the, the local tax base, is subsidizing a new contender, which, like, to some notoriety, aggressively minimizes its its tax obligation, right? Whereas, like, your you know your local retailer is with operating at a QuickBooks is a little less adept at doing that. Yeah, so I mean, Amazon was born out of tax loophole, right? The whole reason that Jeff Bezos got into online book selling is because he realized that there was a, a hole in the law that said if you didn't have a physical presence, and this hole has since been patched, um, but that if you didn't have a physical presence in a state, um, you didn't have to collect sales tax. So from Washington, he was able to sell books in every other state without collecting sales tax. Um, so obviously that lets him undercut every local bookseller that has to. Um, pay sales tax because you know they're literally they're handing you the book and you're and you're giving them your money and their sales taxes involved in that transaction and Bezos took that out of the equation and so he then used that um, and then the, the proceeds he made from that he used to just pull the same trick in line after line after line after line I mean there are lots of reasons Amazon is what it is um, and not all of them are tax related but that is a really key part of its power is its ability to both avoid paying taxes on the one hand and then to actually collect subsidies and government largesse and other regulatory favors on the other. Yeah. And so you've also highlighted a number of other recent cases. Uh, you, there was this case in, in Nashville uh, that regarding Oracle, and they managed to get a 50% property tax for 25 years. Um, how does that shake out for Nashville? This is such a weird one. Um, and Nashville is also, uh, Tennessee is sort of notorious for these deals. Memphis has, a, has mm -hmm. a horrific record of just handing out corporate tax giveaways willy-nilly. I talk about Memphis a bunch in my book because it's just left. Like, there's, a, there's a monument to it, a very large there pyramid. Is, there's a pyramid. Exactly. Yeah. They just, they, you come walking down the street, here you go. Here's your corporate tax abatement. Um, <laughs> and this, this deal with Oracle was, is, is strange. The, the way it's structured is that Oracle will come in, it's building a campus. 
Uh, and this is the new, the hot new thing now in tax incentives to call everything a campus. Every time you're bringing a, a company, it's building a campus because that's more than a headquarters and that's more than just some <laughs> jobs. It's always a campus now. Um, we just Apple campus is opening in North Carolina, a new Google campus in North Carolina. Um, but anyway, this Oracle campus in uh, Nashville, $175 million that Oracle will pay upfront for um, some public infrastructure, a pedestrian bridge, a park, some other stuff. And then yes, we'll get a 50% rake off on its, uh, property taxes until that 175 million is repaid. So this isn't actually like new money going out the door and, and Oracle does have these upfront costs. It's just a very strange situation in which Nashville has decided to sort of outsource its infrastructure building to a private corporation <laughs> and then recoup it through taxation. It's just a little weird. It's not the most egregious of these deals I've seen. Like um, I think the, the, the larger concern with that deal is that there are real displacement concerns, um, and that's you know part of the problem with a lot of these arrangements is that there aren't um, they don't do anything to sort of uh, ameliorate the knock on effects of the people who are already there. Like this large corporation comes riding in, brings all these workers. Contrary to what the corporation will usually tell you, those aren't local people getting hired. It's oftentimes just mm. current employees moving in. Um, so there are like gentrification and displacement concerns with this Oracle deal um, that the city says it has a handle on, but. In my experience, it probably doesn't because cities don't ever really um, in these circumstances. Um, so, but it's just it's just weird the way it is structured and that and that Nashville decided that the way to do this was to have Oracle pay for a bunch of stuff that taxpayers should just pay for and then give it a giant tax break when you could just tax Oracle and build the public infrastructure like normal. But the reason I actually like this, <laughs> I like this Nashville situation is because um, there's a congressional candidate in Nashville. Her name is Odessa Kelly. She's the head of an organization called Stand Up Nashville, um, who is talking about these deals a lot and has been through a bunch of them um, in Nashville, a bunch that were much worse than this Oracle deal, um, and also was a, part, a key part of the city negotiating um, one of the better stadium subsidies arrangements in America. They made a really good deal, actually, with the new Nashville um, MLS team that's coming there. And in return for some public subsidies for a sports stadium, which I generally hate, and cities should not do that, they did actually <laughs> actually make a really good community benefits agreement. And she is now running for Congress sort of on this uh, platform of stop letting corporations hose our city. Um, so it's a really interesting test of whether the politics of this uh, can be flipped on their head because, you know, I've been, as I've been saying this whole time, right, this is a political problem and there are political, there's political capital to be built from doing these deals and from, you know, getting your face, if you're, if you're an incumbent politician, you know, getting your face in the local paper and being able to send out a press release and, and to be able to tout all this job creation, you send out tweets and Facebook posts and look at all the good I'm doing. Um, and that's worth <laughs> something politically, even if it actually turns out to be like worth bupkis economically. Um, so Odessa Kelly's campaign is going to be a really interesting sort of case study. And if you can flip that on its head and say, no, actually, um, this, these aren't, this isn't working for our city and and this isn't appropriate and we just stop doing these things and we need more community input and and her line was just great she said oracle isn't the prize nashville is the prize and i just love that because it's exactly right this, that's great yeah it's so perfect because the thing about these deals right is that we've been told and this sort of gets back to what i said at the beginning that this story that corporate elite um and, and the politicians who love them have told has been like for 40 50 60 years that you should be thankful we are here. We are going to come into town and rain down benefits upon you. And that's why we deserve these tax giveaways. When actually it should be the other way around. Like that should be the city saying, no, it's a privilege for you to be here. And if you want to be here in our excellent community where we have paid for lots of great things with, with our taxes, um, then you need to you need to uh, like achieve certain expect. We have certain expectations for you and you teach you achieve certain ben benchmarks for the community. Um, the way we talk about economic development is just backwards. Like the, the way to build a local economy is isn't 
to dump a bunch of money on a corporation and hope something good happens. It's to have the best education system, have the best transportation system, have the highest quality of life for workers. And then corporations are going to want to come there, right? Places like have incumbent advantages um, and they need to play them up and build on them. And that was one of the most maddening things about Amazon HQ2 was that Wildlight's Northern Virginia, but for all intents and purposes, Washington, D.C., the greater D.C. metro area, mm -hmm. is paying all this money for Amazon to be in the nation's capital. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like Amazon yeah. doesn't want to have a massive presence in, in Washington, D.C., where, oh, by the way, Jeff Bezos has a massive house and owns a newspaper. <laughs> like, of course <laughs> he wants to be here. Um, and yet we've been told that we need to grovel to uh, before these corporations and in return for their investments that they were going to make anyway. And so I, that's why I just love the Odessa Kelly line um, to flip this on its head. And I, and I really hope it goes well for her. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, like, I, I live in Queens right near where the other HQ2 was going to go. And, like, I was very frustrated by that because, like, I don't think that, like, that place is really lighting up already. I don't know how, how, much, how much you need to write them a check to, to move into a neighborhood that is already, like, blowing up. And, you know, so one of my favorite stories that you've ever covered uh, was, you know, the Kansas City, Kansas City ending of the conflict between the <laughs> Kansas cities. Um, and I guess what I'm wondering is, like, How's that been going? Are you seeing more of that? Is there any kind of moving forward hope for more of those disarmament campaigns? I know that you had kind of alluded to recently a um, there, there were a number of state legislatures that were looking at kind of a, a disarming compact, but I guess I'm kind of wondering what's the status moving forward. All yeah, so this was this was uh, for listeners who are interested in the backstory. This was a so-called border war between uh, Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri, and they were literally it's so good, literally <laughs> using incentives to have companies move like a couple of miles back and because the, the metro area straddles the state line, um, and so companies were literally just moving back and forth across the border. Like nobody's job was changing, nothing was happening. People's like commute was just like altered a little bit. And yet tons <laughs> of money was going out the door to do this like obviously ludicrous thing. And even though it did take forever and much longer than it should have, because again, this is obviously and patently stupid. Um, the two states <laughs> did agree to a ceasefire and said, okay, we're not doing this anymore. Um, like no more incentives to get companies to just hop the border um, within the metro area. Like that's, that's no good for anybody, obviously. Um, and so it, it, it's holding, it's sort of tenuous. Every now and again, you'll see, a, corp a company pop up and say that, oh, it's going to try and claim incentives to, to hop back and forth and that one state or another looks like it's going to break it. But it's, it is it is holding so far. Um, and, and assuming that keeps holding, and, and I think it will, um, that is a model for like lar a larger solution to this problem. Because that's always the next step, right? Like, oh, well, what do we do about this? It's existed for for decades, if not centuries. Um, so what are we actually going to do about it? And unless we think that the federal government is going to use its power to come in and put the kibosh on this, um, which it actually, we should maybe circle back to this because it accidentally may have recently. Um, but I don't think it's, <laughs> okay, we'll circle back yeah, I don't think it's going to do it affirmatively uh, in any big way anytime soon. Yeah, there is an effort amongst state lawmakers um, to form a compact that essentially is, is a sort of collective ceasefire where all the states will get together and say, we're not doing this anymore. Every state that joins this compact um, agrees not to use um, state or local incentives to um, steal businesses from any other state in the compact. So it's like multilateral disarmament, right? Because that's the problem mm. is that no one state wants to just say, okay, we're turning off the spigot because there's going to be a political cost to that happening. Some governor next door is going to be a jerk about it and I'd start you know, poaching all your businesses and, and claiming that great things are happening and you're going to look like look terrible and probably lose your reelection campaign. Um, so the great thing about the compact is everybody sort of 
puts the weaponry down together and says, okay, let's all do this at the same time. And they also agree to a bunch of data sharing practices, which I think would be really helpful just because, you know, so that's, it's just that much harder to play states off against each other because they'll be able to literally ask like, hey, what's this corporation telling you? Oh, well, here, that's what, here's what they're telling us on it. So it would improve a lot of things. And yeah, there are bills in um, 13 states at the moment um, to form this compact. And I believe a 14th is coming, though I won't get ahead of them um, in, a, in a state that is pretty exciting, but I'll let them announce it and we can talk again when they do. Um, but that's up from uh, this, this coalition working on this effort. Two years ago, there were bills in five states and it's up to 13 now. This isn't going to happen like this week or next week or next year, um, but I do think it's really promising and I've seen a noticeable uptick in interest in it since the pandemic because state lawmakers for reasons good and bad are sort of like looking around and realizing that this is a giant waste of money um, and are looking for ways to sort of collectively get out of handing out these incentives. <laughs> um, so I think it's promising and it's, it's just such a good model. It doesn't depend on the federal government doing anything. It's just states agreeing to do it together at the same time. Um, and so we will see. That's cool. How did the federal government maybe accidentally <laughs> stop things? <laughs> so there's a provision in the most recent um, COVID relief package that says that um, any state uh, that uh, enacts a net reduction in taxes needs to pay back to the federal government uh, an equal amount of relief funds. So essentially, if you decide to cut taxes by $100 million, give back $100 million in your relief funds because you clearly didn't need it if you were cutting taxes. Um, sure. If you look at the way the law is phrased, a not very, uh, I, I think it doesn't take a deep reading to say that it applies to um, particular, like most definitely new um, state and local corporate tax incentive programs. But even because it talks about administrative um, analyses being, being part of the equation here, um, new awards under existing programs. So I think there's a world in which um, you can very, very credibly claim that this provision should apply to incentive programs, that most certainly any new incentive program that gets authorized, you should have to pay back the federal government by the same amount. Um, and maybe, maybe, maybe uh, new awards under existing programs. Um, and this makes sense. This is the federal government trying to like essentially ensure that um, members of other states didn't have to subsidize tax cuts in in a particular state. Um, so sure. I, I think it certainly applies with the, the, the key is going to be what Treasury says about it. Treasury will be issuing guidance on this provision um, about what counts and what doesn't and, and what you have to do to pay it back. But if Treasury goes with what me and a lot of other folks are saying, applies this to incentive <laughs> package, suddenly new incentive programs are twice as expensive. So if you authorize you know, a $2 billion incentive program, it's not just those $2 billion out the door, it's also $2 billion in relief funds that need to go along with it. Um, so it could be very interesting um, to, to see how states react. Like states are throwing a fit about this provision in general, um, but so far Treasury has been pretty adamant about wanting it policed the way it's written in the law. Um, so we're gonna see, but if, if Treasury goes along with that interpretation, there could be like just a window there where these things have to slow down for a couple of years and hopefully give folks like the folks who are working on the compact a little time to try and get it implemented instead of just having to play constant whack-a-mole. Uh, that's sort of how you feel like working on this. Is that like every day uh, a, a new uh, a, a new bad deal pops up somewhere and you're scrambling so hard to try and just address that that there's no time to like <laughs> sit down and stop them systemically um, in just this uh the piece I did uh, recently on that on that study um, about small businesses, I had sitting around for several weeks just because I kept like new bad deals kept popping up, so I kept having to write newsletters <laughs> about those and be like, oh, I have to push the study edition back another week. Ugh, ugh. Uh, and that's sort of how it is on a policy level all the time too. Yeah. So Janet Yellen, please make Pat's job easier. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I guess that about kind of wraps everything up. Uh, where can folks find you? 
Yeah, so it's uh, the the newsletter is is called Boondoggle. It's on Substack. Um, I work at the American Economic Liberties Project, and a lot of my work on not just taxes but corporate power in general at the state and local level um, shows up there. And I am on Twitter at Pat underscore Garofalo. The underscore is really important because otherwise the most important the underscore. most important underscore because otherwise you're going to wind up following a conservative member of the Minnesota State House. Got it. And you and he, I understand, have distinctly different opinions on On, corporate tax incentives. On most things. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, um, thanks again. I will be sure when I open up the Numlock campus to call it a campus and be sure to pit things against each other. I mean, I hear you should move to Memphis. (laughs) Move move Numlock headquarters to Memphis and you're going to get a really sweet deal. (laughs) Noted. so much to pat for coming on and thank you to jt fails for the use of our theme song uh thank you so much for listening if you enjoy it leave a rating tell a friend about it have a great day thanks